Welcome and thank you so much for accepting our invitation for this Bible study and reflection on November 15th, 2023. I also have another invitation, invitation for you to share this with others, because I truly believe that once God's word is sent out, it never returns empty. Now let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Peace be with you. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we admit that we fall short of carrying each other's burdens in a Christ-like way. Grant that your Holy Spirit would work in and through each one of us to work in community with one another and to bear your image as an example of your grace that your Son extended to us on the cross. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going... Our reading today comes from the book of Colossians. And a short overview of Colossians is Paul was in a Roman prison when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. False teachers were coaching the Colossians to worship angels and follow special rules and ceremonies. Paul corrected this thinking through his letter, stressing that faith in Christ is sufficient for salvation and that nothing needs to be added to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Paul's ministry was based on one person, and that person was Jesus Christ, our Lord. His ministry was based on one person, but it was directed to and shared with communities of believers. In our reading today, Paul reminds the Colossians that as a community of believers, they are all members of one body. This reading is in Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, in a way, God's word can be compared to a cut and polished diamond with respect to the many facets it has and how it speaks to everyone in a beautiful way, but sometimes in distinctly different ways. Today, I'll share a little bit of reflection and a lot of commentary from Mark Maynell, M-E-Y-N-E-L-L, found in a book titled Colossians for You. And he says, Christianity is all about grace. You proclaim that, but does it work like that? Will it actually be more of a matter of saved by grace, continue by works? Paul has gone to great length to explain that religion is useless at dealing with sin's destructive passions. He insists we have been freed from rules. But how on earth are we going to live together? We will have to have some rules, surely. In short, how does a legalism-free community survive? 
The rest of Colossians 3 answers this. It also proves why the church can never be like a country, because states need rulers, legislation, and enforcement. It's simply not possible to make laws about the kinds of things that Paul advocates. After all, how do you police whether someone has been sufficiently compassionate, kind, or patient? Or, if Christ's message has reached an acceptable level of rich indwelling in a home group. We are a long way from legalism here, which is why Paul constantly proposes values and characteristics and not measurable things like rules and punishments. But this is entirely consistent with the idea of the gospel being God's gift. In one of his books, Tim Keller describes meeting a woman who joined Redeemer, the church he used to lead in New York City. She had been taken to church as a child, but had since assumed that we make ourselves acceptable to God by being good enough. Then, when she first encountered the gospel at Redeemer, everything changed. But if anything, she initially found it more scary, not less, which naturally provoked Keller to ask why. Her answer was fascinating, and I quote, If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And Keller makes a crucial observation here. She understood the dynamic of grace and gratitude. If when you have lost all fear of punishment, you also lose all incentive to live a good, unselfish life, then the only incentive you ever have to live a decent life was fear. This woman could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had an edge to it. She knew that if she was a sinner saved by grace, she was, if anything, more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. She knew that if Jesus really had done all this for her, she would not be her own. She would joyfully, gratefully belong to Jesus, who provided all this for her at infinite cost to himself title of the book that that came from is The Reason for God. And I continue with the commentary. The key word in this section is gratitude. It comes in each of the three verses, 15, 16, and 17. What alternative response is even possible? But that gift of Christ's grace changes us because Christ's grace changes everything. We see that in three key ways. Number one, thankful for the peace of Christ. In a Christian community, we are not shaped by rules, but we are shaped by a ruler. The whole of Colossians has been founded on the truth that Christ is the cosmic king. But his rule is unlike any other. It is a rule of peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace. Verse 15, Jesus promised to give his followers peace, not as the world gives, John 14, 27, 
but peace to be found in him, even in the face of trouble that the world gives. John 16:33. This is a deep contentment unmoved by the life storms that buffet us and shake our faith. It is an internal confidence. But while this is a glorious truth, it is not in fact what Paul is referring to. His concern here is the constant challenge for Christians to live together. We have been brought together into one body by Christ's reconciling work. That is a given. He has bound us in peace, as Paul says in Colossians 3.14. But behaving as if we are one body is most definitely not a given. Peace in the church never comes naturally, and so demands constant attention and effort. But how? Through the peace of Christ. Conflict will always arise when two or more people are together. There are many reasons, some neutral, like basic misunderstanding, some negative, like selfishness or hidden agendas, and some that might even be a positive, like both wanting the best for a situation, but having different routes to achieving it. So, conflict among believers is not by itself the problem but the way it gets handled can be. The key in Paul's mind here seems to be Christ's peace ruling in your hearts. This is not super spiritual escapism, as if we simply need to meditate on Jesus and feel peaceful before an argument. Since the heart is the source of all those passions and lust, which cause so many problems in the world, which Paul referred to in verses 5 through 9, He is saying Christ must rule there. The peace he achieved on the cross to reconcile us to God and to each other must be what commentator Douglas Moo calls the decisive factor in any dispute. Some time ago, I heard about a church fellowship in East Africa. In common with churches around the world that use liturgy during services, they would always have a moment to prepare for the Lord's Supper by sharing Christ's peace. But in this particular church, the minister announced the peace with startling words. He mentioned the deep divisions over dispute that had provoked some very nasty infighting. Because Christ had made the opponents all one body, he was going to stop the service until they had faced up to the wounds they had caused and had reconciled with one another. The original dispute was not the issue. What mattered was the way they had treated each other. Since the dispute was so complex, they actually had to abandon the service until the following Sunday, before matters were sufficiently resolved for the Lord's Supper to be resumed. That is quite an extreme, but evidently it was a necessary step. What is clear, however, is that the minister well understood what Paul wrote here. Do we take our community life as seriously as this African brother did? Note how Paul slips in the words, and be thankful. It seems to be an afterthought, but it's actually essential. The mindset of gratitude has been one of the letter's consistent themes. It is wholly appropriate here. If every individual involved in a church dispute insisted on returning to what he or she was thankful to God for, it would guarantee that relationships would be profoundly improved. 
It would put our identity in Christ center stage and thereby make it more likely that people would bear with and forgive one another. Number two, thankful for the message of Christ. The centrality of Jesus to this letter is reinforced by Paul's unusual phrase, the message of Christ, literally the word of Christ, in verse 16. Far more common in Scripture is the phrase, the word of God, but Christ is constantly the center of everything in a Christian community, just as he is in the Lord, as Lord of the cosmos. The gospel of being bound to Christ is what is to dwell among us richly because it is to inform every aspect of our lives. But how does this happen? The words teach and admonish one another should seem familiar. Back in chapter 1 verse 28, Paul explained that admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ was the priority for him and his fellow evangelists. Now Paul says this is what the Colossians are to do with the message of Christ. But notice how, yet again, Paul omits any mention of leaders at this point, just as he did not mention them in the letter's opening greeting in 1-2. Contrary to expectations, this is not a job for leaders, but for believers. This is therefore not only a matter of what is said from the pulpit or in home groups or other classes, Teaching and challenging from Christ's word is not a job just for Christians in paid ministry, but for all believers. If Christ is your Lord, then his word is your treasure. His message shapes and directs all conversations and relationships between all members of his church. Whatever is said must be clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And number three, thankful for the name of Christ. You know, there are no checklists in a grace mindset. Instead, at its center is the person of Christ, or to be more specific here, his name. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If Christians stopped for a moment to consider what Jesus might actually think, let alone do, about what they do in his name, would they persist in doing it? Perhaps a test of this could be to imagine this action or that conversation being included in the story of Jesus in the Gospels. Would it seem out of place or entirely consistent? Would it proclaim the grace and kindness that Jesus so wonderfully displays? And that's the end of the commentary, and those are all really good questions for all of us to ponder. Now let us pray. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we need look no further than your Son and his example of working in community with his disciples as he shared the good news of your kingdom throughout his community and by his great commission, the entire world. Help us, O Lord, to be an active part of a community of believers we call the church. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 
Go in peace. Serve the Lord.